0: When my youngest daughter Michaela was born, her grandmother, who we affectionately called Granberry, declared that Michaela was an old soul. Well, I smiled like any parent would, but I had to be honest, I was more concerned about whether she had all her fingers and toes. It was only after Michaela started to grow up that I realized there might be something to that expression, old soul. Michaela at age two described her moods and colors. She picked up complex things like musical instruments and it seemed like in minutes played well beyond her years same thing with art she was a deep thinker but even then i just framed her as a unique kid i remember having a birthday party in the backyard for her older sister alexandra all the kids were running over to see a clown or somebody making balloons Michaela just wandered off on her own before you knew it she had three or four people around her So only after they started to do this show and connected with some of the indigenous people like Jennifer Menard and Patrice Mousseau, Sandy Boucher, or artists like Harry Connick Jr. and A.C. Mensha, people like Robert Party, people like Chris Hadfield who'd seen the world from outer space, that I realized, perspective, that there's people that truly believe that the energy of this planet isn't the exclusive domain of the present, but also includes our ancestors that walk before us. Today in Chatter the Matters, I'm bringing you another old soul. His name is Salah Bashir, an immigrant to Canada, taught himself English by watching Batman on television. Salah went on to build a media empire. His personal art collection would be the envy of many museums around the world. But what makes Salah so special is his belief that his higher purpose is to give and give back. His mark on life is to be generous with his time, his money, and his thinking. The world is a better place because of this old soul Salah Bashir.
1: You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: He's one of Canada's leading philanthropists. He's a gifted entrepreneur, he's a business leader, extraordinary art collector and advocate of the LGBTQ community, Order of Canada, Order of Ontario, Honorary Doctorates, the Chancellor of OCAD, and believe it or not, so much more. His name is Salah Bashir. Salah, welcome to Chatter That Matters.
2: Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: Thanks for having me. Salah, as a boy, you grew up in Lebanon. Take us back to that time and what you remember of that country growing up there.
2: It was a huge sense of community. I grew up in a small town where everybody seemed to be a relative. My grandmother lived with us and uh, my dad off, you know, was a contractor in other parts of the Middle East and stuff and we'd have to travel for work. But it's almost a dream when you have a childhood then. When you go back much later, and you wonder what happened. We still go back twice. we, well, we went back twice a year before the pandemic. We still have olive groves there in the house. And-
0: Did you ever see Beirut back then? Because what I understand, it was the Paris of the Middle East, one of the most beautiful cities in the world.
2: It, not, it hasn't changed. I mean, Beirut's incredible. I mean, the resilience of the people and everything. And even during the Civil War, there was stuff going on. Anthony Boudrain said it was the most exciting place he's ever been. It's just a, a whole mass of different cultures and a mirror of different things and foods. And it's incredible. I, I can't keep up with Beirut. I can keep up with New York, but I couldn't keep up with Beirut.
0: Age 10, your family has to leave Lebanon. What was the reason and why did they choose Canada?
2: My dad left actually um, five years earlier. There was a chance of a civil war in 1958 when the Americans landed 10,000 troops in Lebanon. He wanted us to be educated and not be there with all the different strife and secularism that was going on. My name is a Muslim Arab name. And so his best friend named his son John, but my middle name is John. So it's kind of one of those things where they both came to, they had a lot of friends in Ottawa with this huge Lebanese community and they chose to come to Canada because, I mean, there's a huge anti-Americanism at the time. So we came to Canada and he thought of Canada would be the most peaceful place and had friends here. And he was right.
0: What was it like for a 10-year-old coming to a country, strange language, obviously the weather patterns are very different. How do you plant roots at that age?
2: Well, you know, there's a whole sense of immigrants who were together and still together. So there was a Mr. Mackenzie in Rexdale, learned English by watching Batman and Bewitched and Bonanza, the three Bs. And we were with My dad, which we hadn't seen for a while, and we're five kids, and we, you know, made uh, made friends here quickly, and uh, it wasn't much of an adjustment. We spoke French as well, so it was kind of a, you know. And I
0: understand that doing some research, you were quite an athlete when you came here. That you, I mean,
2: I'm not now.
0: Well, I've, people can only hear the audio, of it, so I could say you're absolutely ripped. But I mean, but the you know, you were goalie in hockey, quarterback and the football team. That's quite something to come into a new country and kind of work your way into those positions. I mean, did that help you kind of become part of Canada or was it just you just had an affinity for sports?
2: You know, I think it's part of fitting in as well. I think most people want to try and fit in. And we, were, we started with street hockey on, uh, on our street, which is a dead end. And actually, what, despite the pearls and all the jewelry, you can't get a hold of me on Sunday because I'm a huge NFL football and an addict. There's a painting in our office by Attila of a bunch of mostly naked men playing football because he tried to reach me once. And they said, you know, he watches the one o'clock game, then the four o'clock game, then he walks the dog at seven, then the eight o'clock game. So you've got that window at seven if you want. I've never wanted to fit into someone's rule of something that gay men shouldn't do this or do that. So at age 15,
0: you begin down a path, which turns out to be a lifelong pursuit and becoming an activist Taking me back to that time when you're in front of the Dominion grocery stores, trying to get people to boycott the grapes.
2: Grapes are one of my favorite fruits as well. So (laughs) I don't know how it actually came about, but I I know that. And there's a picture somewhere of Bob Ray walking in a march with uh, Cesar Chavez and Dominion Rexdale Plaza. And we started boycotting grapes. It was a strip mall and it's where my mom shopped. And most of the people working in there, we knew and. I had read some, something about the plight of farm workers and thought I should do something about it.
0: It's a great book with John Steinbeck. I remember reading The Grapes of Wrath. So, it's a you... great
2: movie with Henry Fonda.
0: Oh, fantastic movie. So you collect about $100 that day to give to the cost because uh, Cesar Chavez is in town. Sounds like your dad was pretty proud because he topped it up with another 50. But you went yeah. down to present this. And you were kind of embarrassed at how small this amount was, given how big the cause was.
2: I thought a lot more people would have given me money. I, I just thought it was an easy cause, you know, here, you know, whatever. And then they didn't. And I went to present it, and then a life lesson came out of it. It kind of pouted until I only raised $150. And he let me know, which is a real key of fundraising everywhere, where that $150 will go, which families, how it will be spent. and. The biggest compliment is $150 more than we had this morning. Sometimes people will have a fundraiser, but not follow up of where the money is going and what's, what's happening and how, how effective it is. I read so
0: many things about your love. Both, I'm, I'm not dismissing your dad because you talk so glowingly, but when you talk about your mom and some of the incredible, beautiful words, why do you think she made such an impact in your life?
2: They both did. And I, I think mom now is so alive and she's 96 she's got dementia and she lives in the same we have her in the same building we're in for mom it was harder dad had been here earlier and he was part of union local 46 which is the welders and pipe fitters and but mom had to do all these things where i mean there was a tremendous amount of language issues or racism in different ways and all arabs were even back then kind of a terrorist kind of thing and and she came from a a, fam, a well-off family, and she used to dress beautifully. And And then she formed with her own boutique and would go down to Spadina and befriend all these people. And it wasn't a real boutique. It was a dress shop in the basement where her and her friends got dresses wholesale. <laughs> and it was brilliant. She would have a huge garden and make her own bread and food. And I mean, there's a great story. Um, mom would make all these... Incredible Lebanese, who's a Middle Eastern foods, and I'd never had a bologna sandwich or a spam sandwich. And one of my old friends, so I would take the white bread with the bologna and mustard. Never seen such a thing. Trade baklava and tabbouleh with him with it every time. And he came to say hi to mom once. He told her like what an amazing cook she is and how she influenced his whole life of eating. And mom said. I don't, I don't know that person <laughs> and then he explained the whole situation and the
0: situation was you guys would trade you would want the Wonder Bread with bologna for the fresh pita bread and tabo. well yeah we
2: didn't, I mean, spam I don't know what the hell that is but um, <laughs> <laughs> I loved it
0: Hi, it's Tony Chapman you're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC when we come back, Salah Bashir is a quarterback goalie and activist he comes out to his parents they're born and raised with the norms of the Middle East how do they react? His love of large, striking jewelry pieces makes Salah Bashir one of this country's most recognizable philanthropists. He won't admit how much money he has raised over the years, but the millions he has donated himself and helped raise from others have earned him accolades and awards internationally.
2: I'm using my birthday kind of as an excuse to do this party and um, to bring out all these friends. And we wanted, we wanted to do a love letter to the community, to, the, to all the frontline workers, to the healthcare workers who've taken care of me.
1: You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: Welcome back to Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I chat with ordinary people who do extraordinary things. My guest is one of Canada's leading business leaders and philanthropists, Salah Bashir. Salah, you immigrate with your family at age 10. How many siblings join up with your dad when you when you arrive?
2: We're five. We came on a BOAC flight and with my mom <laughs> carrying um, a wicker basket of figs from our groves. In the old days, I mean, that was no big deal. I went to stay overnight in London and my mom didn't speak English. My brother spoke a little bit. By
0: the way, where are you in the family? How do you stack up? Are you the oldest? I'm number four. Number four. And so you got some of the attention until number five came along and they forgot <laughs> about you. So let's talk about your sexuality. When did you come out? And who did you tell first in terms of family and friends?
2: I mean, I was pretty sexually active at a young age. Probably my brother, um, my youngest brother knew and a couple of cousins knew and uh, quite a few people knew that. It was an interesting kind of time where you segmented your time, like you were gay here, you pretended to be straight here kind of thing among different friends and it was an experience. And I was engaged to a woman, a great woman, which got along really well. And she knew I was gay. And we thought we'd have kids and make a go of it. And then I decided I don't want to be one of those people like that goes to a park at two in the morning to have sex. So that's, we're still great friends. It's
0: amazing. I remember I just watched for the second time the uh, Freddie Mercury and Queen documentary. Yeah. And that great scene and how much he loved that woman and how much she meant to him and how he left a lot of his inheritance to her. But he came to that same conclusion. It's fabulous. And how did your parents react to
2: it was the (laughs) um the envy of a lot of my friends in a way i mean i know so many friends who had you know who shut out from their parents you know they had aids or wouldn't want to see them it wouldn't allow friends to the burials or things um there was a party being set up for me in cabbage town because you know i was gonna go and tell my parents and then go back down and all these people were gonna support me and you know I told my mom first, and my mom had the best line, which is kind of still to this day. She said, I just want you to have a child who'll give you half as much happiness as you've given us. And my dad said, Well, I kind of knew. So it was a non, non, non event. I think the the next thing I was staying for dinner, we'll put on the barbecue or something like that. It's like, wow. I think parents obviously know they've been very incredibly supportive parents.
0: And do you think that their understanding and your this philosophy about life is one of the reasons you become such an advocate for this community. And I'm not just talking about the millions you've raised and the recognition you have, but truly just blazing a trail that says it's not about sexuality. It's about passion and brains and intellectual pursuit.
2: I did. I mean, there was a lot of stuff. That, I mean, I was arrested a few times for protesting and, and my parents would There'll be stress caused by that. And at one point, the judge said to me, hey, son, you better be a lawyer because you're getting yourself off so quickly on these things. <laughs> it, it was, yeah, but I think the care of community, I think the, the community I grew up in, my uncle was Lebanon's ambassador to the UN as well, and Greece and London. He was a huge influence on me. And I mean, it's hard to see that something needs help and we can help why you wouldn't do it. You. Go to
0: university, you come back, as many kids do, you park yourself in your parents' house. I understand your mom built you a bathroom downstairs, which is quite something. So, the dress shop suddenly became your pad. But you joined your brother's publishing business. So, tell me a little bit about that. he had
2: the first video store in Canada called Videoland, and he was going to do a newsletter. Part of, I guess, my background is we occupied the student newspaper at Waterloo for nine months. It was like a Marxist kind of thing. And I remember my uh, sister's um, father-in-law ran Wood Gundy. His name was Rohit Beal. And so at the wedding, he, him and his best friend um, from the Demare family put their arms around us and said, yeah, 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 we were all Marxists in the university. You're going to remember all that later. So I learned how to sell ads and edit in a newspaper. So he wanted to do a newsletter. And so we did it out of the basement of the video store. I was actually running a community center and uh, freelancing. And I said, I could do do it for you part-time. So I'd go in and type with two fingers on those old underworld typewriters.
0: You talk about learning how to sell. And I look at my life where I learned how to sell radio advertising as probably the greatest lesson in life. Do you think that more young people should find time in their life to actually learn how to sell through an idea or sell a product or service?
2: My Marxist years, there was a quote that our uh, history of, of political economy professor, I don't know what the title, proper title, that i will always put on the board. Relationships are capital. A simple line, and like I would be going selling a progressive newspaper to Kelly's Stereo in Waterloo, Waterloo Square, and we'd have nothing in common, but we would talk about different things. And I almost say to him, are you going to take an, oh, yeah, 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 don't worry. I'll, we got the ad, but let's talk about this. People want to work with people that, you know, are doing great things out there that are helping things. And and so many times lately, I'm just in this new magazine, I'm getting all this things, like, we don't do print. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, you know, it, like, there's like every digital, Well, we have a lot of digital, but, you know, magazines stick around the house for months, right? You don't throw it out and you can go a hundred times on a digital platform and I'm relearning things from these young people out there. What's the
0: best lesson you learned about yourself, going from as you describe yourself a Marxist in university, to uh, occupying instead of the newspaper your your brother's uh, basement for a community center and a newsletter? If you define the the lesson in life that you put in your knapsack, then that you carried with you all your life, what would it be?
2: Always learn from any situation you are in. You know, a lot of the stuff even learning from how economy works and how things work. And even on everything, be yourself. I mean, there's a lot of people who may not like you and you don't want to do work with them either. So you don't want to be miserable doing me. And you have to enjoy what you're doing.
0: My special guest is Salah Bashir. Family escaped the civil war in Lebanon. In his teens, he becomes an advocate for a better planet. He proves himself to be a gifted entrepreneur. So Sally, you've rubbed shoulders with a lot of celebrities. But I think one of the funny stories i ever read is when your mom happens to be in town, and you introduce her to something, what does she do first? She
2: puts her hand on my cheek.
0: <laughs> basically say you're the most special person. Yeah. Who's the, who's the celebrity that impressed you the most?
2: None. My doctors and nurses who, when I was doing dialysis and had a kidney transplant two years ago, then I got sepsis and then. I had an ileostomy and then had to go back in a year ago, actually, and have a reversal just to see the dedication, actually, during COVID when no one could visit me, nurses who would come and give me a foot massage or stay later on their shift. And in some cases, you actually cried afterwards because they would go home on the subway and then get all these anti-Asian slurs or anti-Filipino slurs and come back the next day.
0: Every time I've been in the room with you, and sometimes you have the most extraordinary jewelry on, you have a presence. The spotlight follows you. I always feel like I'm in the company of royalty. And I don't mean royalty that you sat on a crown, but royalty in terms of the sense that you're a healer, you're a giver, you're a contributor. Do you ever feel like there's ancestry guiding you? Or do you just feel that you're just on the planet for one life?
2: I do feel a lot of My elders, in a sense, you know, I I do feel like I don't want to disappoint my parents. I do feel there's like a, a large community of people active. Like, you know, when we did the dialysis center at St. Joe's and everything I did there, it was like complaints from patients that we don't have that. And it's like, well, let's get it. I do feel very blessed. I'm not religious, but I think a lot of support from everyone. So, you know, and I think the attraction of celebrities, um, I'm doing a book in New York, but we're talking about a couple of people. And the, the whole attraction was, I didn't want us putting a spotlight on them as well. They're working in the spotlight all day. And there's a story about Elizabeth Taylor coming to try jewelry at uh, my kitchen table. And she put on an Hermes scarf, her sunglasses, and took a cab from the Four Seasons. So nobody would recognize her. And And there was a story once about Richard Gere coming to the apartment, it was very funny. And the concierge said to him, you look like somebody. And he said, Richard, here. And he said, no, 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 you don't look that good.
0: (laughs) Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. Talking with Salah Bashir. And when we come back, we learn about Salah's love of the arts and the work he collected back then, that today would be welcomed on the walls of any art museum in the world. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A big shout out to First Up with RBCX Music that promotes emerging Canadian artists. They provide a platform for these artists to perform, to find new fans through media exposure, and access industry experts and mentors. RBC's enabling Canadian talent to continue to hone their craft, progress their careers, and follow their passions. Supporting Canadian artists matters to RBC. Do you think that more young people should find time in their life to actually learn how to sell through an idea or sell a product or service?
2: My march this year there was a quote that our uh, history of, of political economy professor, I don't know what title, proper title, that I've always put on the board. Relationships are capital.
1: Each week, you can download the latest episode of Chatter That Matters as a podcast from your iHeartRadio Canada app, now more with Tony Chapman.
0: When it comes to my guest, Salah Bashir, he makes that most at a very minute. He just joined me at age 10. He and his family immigrated from Lebanon. He learns to trade his mother's fresh Lebanon cooking for a bologna sandwich, becomes an activist at age 15, takes over the school's newspaper. And we're going to get a little bit more into the brilliance of this entrepreneur and what he's done. But before we get to that, Salah, I've been to your condo. I've been to your office. And the best best way to describe your office to my listeners is I... I was looking for the washroom and I turned the corner I'd end up in this little alcove where they had a photocopy machine and the art on the wall there would be among the best art I've seen. And that was in the alcove. Every tree wall is covered with amazing art. You've got amazing art piled sometimes three deep. Where did you fall in love with art and how did you become such an astute collector?
2: You know, it's an addiction, I think. And I remember saying to my, a friend of mine, who's was still my accountant these, to these days Alia, like, Why would I buy stocks if I can put a Warhol on the wall? In the early 80s, and I was pretty active in New York, and there's all kinds of stuff in New York, and I would have stayed in New York if it wasn't for AIDS happening. People offered me, a lot of well-known people offered, including Warhol and Keith Haring and stuff, offered me pieces of art. But it was still that mentality that you wanted to be a gypsy and you don't want to have a house and... So, I, on a couple of occasions, I actually told my landlord, can you get rid of all of this? Like, I'll pay you on going somewhere. I'm going home or something. At my uncle, again, had a great love of art and um, married to an artist now. And it began in a way um, supporting friends who didn't have any money. So, it, then I started, when I started collecting seriously, I'll be involved in the whole process with the artists trying to do. And it's kind of a patron process, but not totally in the sense that. And as I understood it, and, we, and it's a pretty eclectic collection.
0: It's eclectic, but in many ways, it defines who you are as well. From lacrosse goalie to the you know, patrons of the arts. You've you met Andy Warhol then.
2: Yeah. I, you know what? It's so funny. I did an interview with the Globe and Mail, and, and this is years ago. And But I said there that I felt embarrassed to say that I knew Andy. I said, no, I never met him. And so I just thought, oh, my God, this sounds so pretentious to say, it. well, yeah. Andy Warhol gave me a series of, of prints of 10 prints. It's the mm-hmm. chrysanthemums, the flowers, the well-known, you know. And when I was in the video industry, there used to be these poster tubes, and so you'd buy them at Grand and toy and put a, a, a bow on them, and I didn't really have any money, so I started giving them weddings and everything. Everybody threw them out except my mom. Everybody thought it was just a poster. <laughs> Like they're worth hundred grand now and life happens kind of thing. I, I think that's quite cool. And that we have a Betty Goodwin, a beautiful Betty Goodwin. It's a Holocaust memorial piece. It was at the National Gallery and has like in front of the piece a shovel. The National Gallery sent it back to the house in Paris. And friends who love to garden had come out to garden and they used that shovel in the garden. <laughs> I, t- I said, Betty, I'm sorry. She said, oh, I hope you left the dirt on it. I think sometimes some people don't take it too seriously and don't know why this stuff is hanging on the walls. They're walking around with a consultant, and I think I understand what that is, but I've, yeah, I've never been that person.
0: It's interesting your parallel when you're talking about Cesar Chavez and what he taught you about understanding where those dollars are going, the story arc, the journey, the path. You've also applied it to art.
2: Yeah, a lot of my art, I think, talks to each other. You you see, you were in the apartment a little bit. There is like the AIDS and the Holocaust pieces, but there's also pieces of of freedom that swimmers coming out of the sea kind of things and all kinds of stuff. So, And another person who taught me a lot about fundraising, this sounds like I'm dropping names, but is Norman Jewison. Norman Jewison at the Canadian Film Centre. I didn't want to go see a certain person. Because I thought he was homophobic and right-wing, and he, but he was going to give a ton of money to the film center. And I said, no, mm-hmm. I'm not going. And he said, Salah, in fundraising, we smile at everybody. We get the check and call them on, on the way back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a classic one. So Salah, let's talk about your ability as a gifted entrepreneur, because you started your magazine 1984, which was really devoted. It's called Premiere. I guess it was, more again, the entertainment world. It was a trade show. But over time, you've turned this into one of the biggest media platforms in the world. I know partners along the way, but you have been the force. So Tell me about why you choose content, why entertainment, and how did you make a business grow to that kind of level of success and energy?
2: We started in 1980 with a magazine called Mania and Videomania was what my brother's newsletter was going to be, and we made it a magazine. And then we connected with uh, the old Festival of Festivals, and we did a special video thing with it. The whole idea was also if any of the studios, I mean, the U.S. studios who weren't in Canada or would ask us, well, who can we get to do this? We said, we'll facilitate it for you. So we never said no to any opportunity and partnered with people we could. So we had a print broker had a custom content business. So that, that's kind of how it started. Again, it became a relationship with people and to the point where the old Disney mm-hmm. home video or universals or stuff like that would go to us on everything. Like We were like a clearinghouse for them to find it. And, uh, and they were paying US dollars back then and we charged them in Canadian dollars.
0: You really took this concept of content and again, the same pattern I'm learning, the sense of, I'm not just going to watch a film, you're going to open my mind to the stories and the actors and the backstories. This is kind of being the blueprint of who you are. I mean, it's to let people know that they can go beyond the surface.
2: You know, and we had a concept that I don't want to criticize any film because I learned early in the video business that certain films are bigger in Quebec than they are in other provinces. So our own philosophy was never to put people down or do anything like that you know, more about the love of film and going to the movies and wherever it was, even on TV or Netflix, wherever it was. So
0: we share a very close mutual friend uh, and someone that we both love dearly, Rick White. Rick was such a fan of yours. Rick was at Scotiabank and, you know, everybody knows that RBC sponsored this, but I have to say that Rick and you combined to put a partnership together between Scotiabank and Cineplex, because Cineplex had bought Famous by that time, that was one of the great loyalty plays in the world. But it wasn't just a card. It was digital screens. It was naming theaters. And it just, it just evolved as this partnership saying, at the center of it, people love culture. And if we can make people access that culture and get that sort of first-mover advantage. So that must have been quite a time for you to go, that I'm not just in the business now of magazines, that this empire is expanding dramatically.
2: I went to Rick. We had, you know, Alice Jacob, who I'm a huge fan of, arranged a meeting. And so I went to Rick and we had uh, lunch. And in the middle of it, I said, you're not just going to blow me off here. Paramount wants to rename theaters. And I don't know why they would rename it such a, because simplex uh, bought famous players. And we talked about it. His idea was that it can't be just naming. We don't put our name on building back then. It has to include a loyalty program. And I said to him, well, you know, in the media business, you're catching such people at a young age that they're customers for life. And I said, RBC gave me my first account at 17. RBC gave me a British Airways Visa card, which I don't think they still exist. And I took it out of my wallet and put it on the table. I said, I'm still a customer.
0: I just love the fact that Rick, like you and like him, and I think like me, the concept of retirement will never happen because life is just (laughs) so much fun. Your husband, Jacob, is an acclaimed artist. Yeah. How does he deal with having his own art, his own passion, his own pursuit, but also living within the shadow of
2: Salabashire? Yeah, I mean, the greatest thing about Jacob is when I needed dialysis, we did it at home. He became a nurse. When I needed my ostomy bag changed, he learned how to do it. So it's been an incredible adjustment of incredible caring. And he was a scenic artist on Degrassi. And, you know, I <laughs> When we were first together in the first two years, I made him quit because he was getting up at six in the morning to drop at Ivy at daycare, then go at DeGrassi and then come home. So that was an arrangement um, that he's decided on. And even having a show, I'll sometimes say, well, no, I'm just happy creating. I don't need a gallery.
0: My special guest is Salah Bashir, activist, gifted entrepreneur, an incredibly eclectic life. But there's one constant that defines the theme of the show life is not a dress rehearsal it has to be your philanthropy and also with a sense of humor because you're also known as was it gala Galasala, yeah let yeah what made you decide that because you a lot of people just want to hoard and count their wealth and feel how incredibly successful they are but it, to me it's just this. Uh, the sense of recurring bringing wealth in and bring and putting wealth back out there what put you on that path in life
2: with, i mean I, we started in the video industry early but it was also to honor great legends that have done stuff and bring it bring that into it and i have a thing with galas uh I think it's great advice for anyone. Everybody coming there knows what they're coming for. So don't give me a speech. Give me a great meal. Give me, I don't care how the room is decorated. Give me great wine. Give me a great meal. Great entertainment. I'll come back next year. So I've limited a lot of people, a lot of well-known people to two minutes. That's it. You know, just say, and people want to go see their friends and hang out with people. I already bought a table for 25 grand so that they believe in it. In some ways, it's been a hard lesson for people. We've done some virtually, but I have a lot of friends I could rely on, and they've been the reason a lot of the success has been there.
0: How do you decide where you're going to put because one thing you you and I share is a finite amount of time. So how do you choose where to invest that time knowing that you can make such a difference in so many areas?
2: There are organizations I've involved with deeply and, and so I think that has to um, continue our involvement. We are going to be more involved with the Woodland Cultural Center, which is a residential school out here in Windsor uh, in Brantford. The whole thing about saving the evidence and 519 matters for me a lot. It's a community center. it's Everybody can come in. It's not one particular thing. And we've been ahead of the world in Canada and then, you know, transition place and support and, you know, art matters a lot to me. And uh, there's a lot of healing in art and there's a lot of power in being inspired by in a gallery, and you kind of escape all kinds of backgrounds. There.
0: What's next for you?
2: I'm writing a piece right now about um, Norman Jewison for the magazine, and, and we gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award in 1985. And he said, why are you giving me an award now? I've got a lot more film in me. And I thought, well, it's like everything you've done so far. I just want to be active in different things and choose what I want to do and be involved. And I'm doing this magazine with the star, which I think you will see everything we talked about. What's great about it is I'm getting all these offers to do stuff so I can choose. So what advice
0: or final words would you give for the 10-year-old that lives inside all of us, based in the 10-year-old that came to Canada, in terms of how to make sure that they don't treat life as a dress rehearsal.
2: I think that whole quote that relationships are capital, that relationships mean everything. And people are going to remember how you treated them and they're going to treat you. And it's like the old, it's not, I guess, a Christian thing, whatever, but you don't necessarily have to accept several people. You don't have to respond to every email. You don't have to get, you know think about it. Respond when you're in a place not of anger. And everybody might be having a bad day. You never know what's going on, what's happening in someone's life. Or when we went to the hospital the last time, there was a woman at the front who kept telling us, Jacob can't go in. I could do it on my own. And I got a little angry. And then when I came back, out, she said, well, she's only protecting people, really. They had a policy of not wanting to have people in. So I think there's different takes on different things, which doesn't mean that you should ever put up with abuse. And be courageous. I mean, it gets better. It honestly does get better in the sense that don't be afraid to be controversial and uh, be courageous.
0: So I'm chatting with Salah this year, and I always end my podcast with the three things I've learned. I knew you would be a struggle because it would be mo- way more than three, but I'm going to repeat what you just talked about, relationship is capital, and how the human heart and connecting on emotion and purpose and passion is something that can break down any barrier. Second, I love the fact you say, learn from every situation. And I think the most incredible people, the ordinary that do extraordinary are curious. Uh, As you say, you wanna get involved. You wanna learn the backstories. You wanna know more than just the surface. And the last one's a tough one because you just brought one in, but I really love what you said about there's not any celebrity that's impressed you. And, but saying the people are impressed in you is that Filipino nurse that works tirelessly all day for your health, goes home, gets abused on the subway, racial slurs, and come back the next day. And everybody in this audience, including myself, sometimes should just not only acknowledge what they do, but give the kind of standing ovation I'm giving to you for uh, a life well lived. Salah Bashir, thank you for joining me in Chatter the Matters.
2: Thank you very much for joining. Nice to see you.
0: Joining me now is Jacqueline Sestito. She oversees RBC's visual arts portfolio, curatorial department, and TIFF sponsorship. Jackie, welcome. Thank you. So Sala collects art for pleasure, but as it turns out, it's also proven to be an incredible investment and one that helps him fund his philanthropic efforts. What's RBC's motivation for being a collector of art?
1: The RBC art collection was actually started um, in 1929 and, and originally was led by some really art interested executives who wanted to bring culture to the office space. Interestingly enough, 90 years later, although the mandate of the collection has changed quite a bit, the idea of bringing culture and ideas to the place that we work is still very true. And we do that through displaying art on our walls. 95% of our over 5,000 artworks actually are all over the world in RBC offices. Um, And we just see it as a way to represent the vibrancy of the communities where we work. And we take a lot of pride in it.
0: So 5,000 pieces, how do you possibly choose who to collect and why?
1: So the curatorial department uh, has a really big focus on collecting Canadian and Indigenous art because as Canada's largest financial institution, we really want to reflect the communities where we live and work, but also represent the great Canadian talent that we have all over the world. The collection also has a very significant focus on the acquisition of emerging artists, which actually makes up of those 5,000, about 50% of them um, are emerging artists, which is something that we invest in kind of across the board, supporting and developing emerging talent.
0: So talk to me a little bit more about that. Because when I had Jeff Lindsay on, he took great pride in the fact that not only did do they uh, support artists? They really help them find that audience. What are you doing as a bank to help artists really develop their brand and get the kind of attention that their uh, creativity deserves.
1: Absolutely. So the Emerging Artists Project is a program that we invest across all art genres, and it works to specifically bridge the gap between emerging and established talent and strengthening artists, professional networks, mentorship and training, as well as the opportunity to share their work with new and diverse audiences. And the RBCX Music Program does a phenomenal job of that, of recognizing talent and providing them access and opportunities for performance. With the visual arts, we actually create, a studio tour series that we called From Within. And they were very short yet very rich videos that uh, gave us glimpses into artists' creative spaces. Um, And it was an opportunity to really drive some great dialogue around what ignites artistic exploration and expression. And the short format of it allowed us to be able to share with the world and new audiences these art forms and these artists specifically.
0: So you must have one of the coolest jobs at RBC because you're also involved in the TIFF sponsorship. And Salas, as you know, has been involved in movies and content his entire life. What a great
1: job. I love my job. (laughs) How did you get it? I started working 13 years ago uh, at an ad agency and I happened to get a really cool gig working on the 2010 Olympic torch relay. And so I got to do that and RBC was a sponsor and just met the right people and, and then got, came over to RBC and started working on the TIFF sponsorship. This is my 12th TIFF. So yeah, I've I kind of just made my way through the bank and I've always kind of worked on the RBC stuff, but it is, yes, it's a wonderful job. I'm so lucky. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. On the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.